0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Everything Compliance, where I have four of the top compliance practitioners and commentators across the globe are going to join me. Jay Rosen in California, Mike Volkoff, who's traditionally in California but happens to be in Houston today. I am in Houston. Matt Kelly is in Boston, or Cambridge, I suppose I should say and Jonathan Armstrong joining us from London. So, gentlemen, welcome. Mr. Volkoff, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, kind of the continuing conversation from the Yates memo through the pilot program and perhaps some of the uh, unintended consequences. Lanny Brewer gave a speech a couple of weeks ago at the FCPA blog New York City conference where he talked about the concept of deconfliction which he said involves the government asking a company to halt its own investigation so that the government could be the first to uh, interview witnesses. And he opined that that could seriously impact, negatively impact a company because a company, of course, needs to do an investigation, not only determine the root cause analysis, but determine what steps are, are necessary for remediation. And a corporation has multiple stakeholders that they have to answer to uh, shareholders, the government, uh, their own employees. Uh, so there, there, there might be a, a de-confliction there, uh, as Mr. Brewer put it. But I guess what I wanted to use that as an, an introduction to ask you, what are you seeing as some of the unintended consequences of the Yates memo through the pilot program up until today?
1: Well, thanks, Tom, and, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to, uh, the panelists and to everyone. Um, you know, uh, it's an interesting issue you raised, Tom, because, uh, you know, Lanny Brewer raising this, uh, deconfliction concern is somewhat of a concern, but I think it's a little bit exaggerated. I always felt that Lanny Brewer liked to make himself seem a little, you know, more important than he was. Uh, and he, you know, going back to his Roger Clemens representation days, Um, so the one thing, uh, I, I don't think that if you're asked during an internal investigation to stand down, first off, that's a pretty unusual request. And oftentimes I think it may be linked to operational type things, for example, where they may want to have, they have an informant and they may want to, um, know, wire up the informant and have them talk to somebody at your, you know, somebody at your firm or at your company who they may think is, you know, the main mastermind in this uh, to build a better case or, you know, even to interview them, I think is interesting because that's usually going to be somebody who may lawyer up, take the fifth, and they want a chance to interview them without the lawyer being present, whereas if you do the initial internal investigation and you confront the person. They may get a lawyer, but it may be you, they may not trust you to do as good a job or to try to shape the interview or minimize the corporate sort of liability in the discussion that you have with that person. So I, I I've heard about this coming up occasionally. Now the consequences of that in terms of remediation and shareholder litigation, I think is a little bit exaggerated because I think any judge or any situation where you have done something at the behest of the government, you're not going to get penalized for it, or you should be. Um, in the end, you should. Uh, if you're helping the government or doing something because the government asked you to do it, the company in the end is going to still get a good settlement, let's say from the government. But I do see the one real tricky issue as to the company's ability to shape the story is somewhat. Uh, diminished when they're not controlling the information or access to important information. So that, I think, is probably, you know, uh, lawyers, internal investigation lawyers aren't going to like this at all. That's what I think. So, Mike, you ended
0: with a point that I wanted to maybe transition into, which is at the same uh, FCPA blog, New York City Conference, Richard Bestrong talked about these concepts from the potential defendant, uh, individual defendant perspective. And he said that if he was an individual being interviewed in a uh, corporate internal investigation and, and he felt he was going uh, potential, like, potential criminal liability, he would not talk to the corporate investigators. He would want he and his counsel to go directly to the Department of Justice for the reason you suggested, which is he wants to tell his story unfiltered by the
1: company. Do you think that would could or would
0: negatively impact a corporate investigation?
1: That that now that is, I consider that to be a more significant point uh, rather than the the first one. And the reason is that as the Yates memo turns and as corporate internal investigations become more like mini prosecutions, meaning, you know, we're doing the work that the prosecutors used to do 20 years ago. Uh, we're putting the case together and then presenting the case to the government and saying, here's your individual case. As that happens, and in five years it's going to be a lot different because I think people are going to start to question the integrity of the internal investigation and hold us to, to standards like we are little mini prosecutors. And judges, I think, are going to start to look mm-hmm. underneath the, the quality of the internal investigation, the fairness of it. So, As that happens, more and more individuals are going to just say, forget it. I'm not going to cooperate. I may lose my job, but at least I'm not going to lose my liberty by confessing to you, you know, Mike Volkoff, I'm going to get a, you know, a a big name attorney and I'm going to, you know, run to the government and cut my own deal and I'm going to take the fifth unless I get a good deal. And that's the way it's going to work. Now that I see. That, I definitely think, is going to happen. I am befuddled by how many individuals will actually sit there and talk to a corporate investigator when they really should have an attorney and they really should have, you know, protection and cut their own deal with the government. Run to the government and that's your best shot to get immunity or the, you know, if you're the first person in the door, you've got a chance for the best deal you can get. Whereas if you sit there and wait for the case to be put together and you're the most culpable person... You're not going to get a deal like that when the company, after the company, goes to the government. So that's a really good point. I think that's going to happen more and more frequently and derail the internal investigation process.
0: Mm. Does anyone have any comments on uh, what Mike has said?
2: Uh, Jonathan, I, I agree with um, I agree with Mike. I think we're seeing it already. I've been involved in in some internal investigations which. Um, I mean, I think there are two issues, really. I think that sometimes internal investigators, particularly those who've come out of government, think they're still there. And there's a track record of that giving us difficult cases. You know, if you look at the Renault investigation in France, which is a complete mess, you know, former uh, special agents in France that uh, work for Renault and think they're still um, chasing down hoodlums all around the world and use very questionable techniques in their investigation and then try and flee justice themselves. If you look at the Deutsche Bahn investigation, where, again, the investigators think they've become some sort of superhero that can investigate 160,000 employees or whatever the number was at once, Um, we already have this issue that some people within corporations think they, because they're ex-law enforcement, they have the same powers to... You know, force banks to cooperate with them to bribe people because it's for the greater good. And at the same time, I think I think Mike's right, really, that that sometimes in an internal investigation, the person that's got the spotlight on them is innocent, of course, but sometimes they're guilty. And if they're guilty, what is the disincentive for them to throw the dice and criticise? the investigation and the way they've been handled, either to the corporation or to, the, um, or to an event, eventual prosecution. In Europe, of course, there are very easy data privacy challenges in most internal investigations, and I've seen them. You know, I've seen somebody who was almost certainly guilty try and delay the investigation by using data privacy arguments. they lawyered up very quickly. And, and, and got good lawyers very early. And, and the net, net is, of course, eventually we can still get the evidence, but there's a bit of a delay undoubtedly. And, um, whilst that delay is happening, they're at home on full pay. So the very worst that happens to them under European HR law or in most jurisdictions is they get another three months pay. Uh, oftentimes, I think corporations will pay them out for good because the investigation is challenging to run. And even if the investigation works well and you eventually get to a court, then they've got a chance to challenge the way in which the investigation was done again. So we have cases like Dardala, which was this case where the SFO, the case was withdrawn from the jury after an SFO prosecution, where we still, I don't think, know the full facts, but U.S. law firm has an investigation which includes interviewing people and there are some uh, discrepancies, let's say, as to how that interview might have been conducted and net, net is the person who'd cooperated with government is uh, pleads guilty and the uh, other individual pleads not guilty and the, the trial collapses. So I think the difficulty we have Sorry to give a long answer, but, for example, the SFO here are saying things like question whether lawyers should be involved in internal investigations because then we have privilege arguments, and should someone in HR be doing the internal investigation instead? And, frankly, I just think that's hogwash. Um, you know, we've already had difficulties with investigations being conducted badly. It doesn't get any better by recruiting somebody less qualified to do it. And, um, and and we need we need some sort of understanding from prosecutors of the pressures uh, corporations are under. But the corollary of that is we need corporations to professionalise the way in which they conduct internal investigations as well.
3: Hey Tom, this is Matt here, <clears throat> and I just wanted to pick up on a point that Mike had raised too. I think this threat of Executives with knowledge of misconduct, not cooperating, quitting, uh, bolting from the company and then possibly cutting their own deal with the, the government. like this, this is absolutely a big consequence of the Yates memo, uh, especially for the sophisticated executives who probably are the types who would know to do this. They're probably also the types who would, if they decided to commit bribery, like they would be the ones who would engage in this sort of thing, might know that this is one way for them to potentially get a better break if they're looking for an out. Um, I have been keeping an eye on the FCPA investigation disclosed about a month ago by Cognizant Technologies, where late on a Friday at the end of the third quarter, which is always when you want to disclose unpleasant news because everybody's going to peace out. They announced, number one, they have an FCPA investigation that they're looking into. Number two, they're fully cooperating with the Justice Department. And then number three, our president and previous CFO, one person, uh, he's just resigned. Right. I'm not saying that he resigned because somebody said cooperate with our internal investigation or you're fired, but this fits the profile of the sort of incident like just mentioned, you know, that if a executive has the choice between cooperating and self-incriminating or quitting, leaving the company with nothing at all, this, this is what it would look like. And I think we're going to see more of it in the future. And this is absolutely a, a real consequence of the AIDS map.
0: So, Matt, let me uh, let me uh kind of transition to a topic I've been really wanting to visit with you about. You you write and speak and think a lot about the intersection of compliance and corporate governance. And yes. um, the uh, we had a chance to visit with you a little bit at the SCCE about some of these issues, but I wanted to see if we could take a little bit deeper dive into what your thoughts were around the role of compliance in areas of sort of outside strictly legal compliance like anti-corruption compliance, perhaps moving toward more towards reputational risk. And we've got a new set of REV-REC standards. You've written about that. You've written about non-GAAP accounting, uh, really a, a wide variety of issues generally under the umbrella of corporate governance. Do you see a role for compliance in this broader um, umbrella, or do you think compliance should really just be – anti-bribery, anti-corruption, export control, uh, money laundering, kind of the traditional legal type compliance standards. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Well, I think that this is a very difficult issue for compliance officers to address well, partly because they will often get pulled into a, I'll call it a misconduct mess after it happens but there isn't necessarily a logical way for them to insert themselves into these conversations before the mess happens, because it is more about issues like corporate culture, uh, corporate strategy. Um, I think that clearly one of the biggest corporate compliance discussions or teachable moments of 2016 will be Wells Fargo, where really they, Somebody like a chief ethics and compliance officer could maybe have warned Wells Fargo that your sales incentive culture was setting you up for some really big negative possibilities sometime in the future, which now have come home to roost because as we all probably know, Wells Fargo's fired 5,000 employees over the last five years for creating fictional customer accounts. So those employees could meet sales performance goals And Wells wound up paying $185 million in fines. But, you know, you look at something like that, how would a ethics and compliance officer have been able to tell Wells Fargo's executive committee that your financial performance targets are going to translate into a negative culture, which will lead to a compliance failure and a big reputational risk failure as well? Like that's... That's sticky, and I don't really know how you can easily do that unless the board and the CEO have really called the compliance officer in to say, you're empowered. Yes, you can do this. Um, The other big one that always fascinates me is Mylan Labs with the criticism that it price-gouged the cost of its EpiPens because it could. That was legal, and because the executive committee engineered its own executive compensation plans so that the CEO was rewarded for looking at this sort of price gouging strategy. It worked for Milan, made a lot of money off it. It wasn't illegal, but it certainly is reprehensible in a lot of people's minds. What was the compliance officer's role there? I, I don't know. I would say one other point. A lot of people will say compliance officers need to be empowered. That that's how, you know, the great empowered chief compliance officer, very important. We're always thinking of that in terms of they're separate from and don't answer to the general counsel so they can do investigations and in pursuit of the truth. Now, that's important. But for all of what I just mentioned here, the independence is really about so you're co-equal to and can answer to and stand up to the head of HR or maybe the CFO about things like setting corporate culture. Dictating financial goals and how they might impact culture, how you change things. I think that's important, too. But that's very different sort of independence than what we typically say about they can't be the GC because the general counsel is only interested in reducing liability. There's all sorts of other issues here that need an independent CCO that I don't know that a lot of executives have really thought through. That's what an independent CCO would mean. But, But here we are.
0: So Mac could I ask you what do you think that could even extend to something like when a company reports non-GAAP accounting uh revenue or figures in a public uh 10K or, or excuse me 8K or 10Q uh could a could a compliance uh professional have input into that from a reputational standpoint or, standpoint, or do you think that's really beyond the pale?
3: Uh, you know, there are going to be cases like that, but non-GAAP, you know, you can run afoul with your non-GAAP metrics in two ways. A so very by-the-book way, which the SEC has already warned about, that the presentation of non-GAAP is against rules that, you know, you put it in big point size, it's up on a headline, and then you bury further down that, according to GAAP, though, we actually lost a boatload. Well, okay, that's a very clear regulatory compliance and, you know, SEC filing issue. Sure, a compliance officer can be involved in that. But the trickier question of the substance of a non-GAAP metric and does it really help investors understand the business or are you adopting it for some other purpose, such as to enrich the executives? And this is exactly what Mylan Labs had done with its non-GAAP performance metric for executive pay, There are many people who would say that was not really going to pass the smell test. It wasn't illegal, though, but could a compliance officer weigh in and say the metric you're using is non-GAAP, but also has the side risk of not passing the smell test and creating reputation risk? That's a harder argument to make, and I don't necessarily know. That's more of an ethics issue than a strict compliance issue. And it really depends on how much ethics is part of your job as a part of compliance and that's I don't think that's a question a lot of companies or the greater community have answered yet.
0: Anyone else have any thoughts on uh, what Matt ruminated about on uh, the intersection of compliance and corporate governance? I
2: throw a question to Matt. So, um mm-hmm. I went to a lecture maybe maybe five years ago from a guy called Patrick Dixon, a, a South African futurist. One of his predictions was that compliance departments will, will cease to exist, and they'll be replaced by what I think he called the Department of the Moral Compass. So they'll have to look beyond compliance at doing what the right thing is. It seems there's a current of that in, in what you're saying. Is the map
3: I think it is because uh, you know, really, when you talk about reputation, with who well with the public, and the public has a very sharp moral compass that can be pretty easily triggered, and once you do in hindsight it 's almost painfully easy to see, oh yeah, we were setting ourselves up for a problem here, as in Wells Fargo, which really you know, was in a very unflattering problem. While there were compliance failures with Wells Fargo, the root of it was more like the ethics of a high pressure sales culture and you know stifling dissent um, so i I think that there's going to be more and more discussion of that because people the public are relatively unforgiving when it comes to reputational risks like that
2: hmm. interesting
0: uh, Jonathan, if I could turn to you. Yeah. Um, we had some I thought interesting news out of the United Kingdom around the serious fraud office and uh, one of the bits of news was that the SFO had asked for either supplemental or additional funding to uh, further its investigation of Oil, and so I wanted to use that uh, as an entree to have you help us understand why would the SFO need to ask for funding beyond their regular funding And also, one of the things that I think caught the U.S. compliance um, press uh, last year was that uh, Theresa May uh, made noises that uh, the SFO uh, might need to be dissolved and folded into other departments within the uh, British government. As the new Mm -hmm. prime minister, do you think the SFO will be under either attack or under pressure, or does perhaps – Ms. May have uh, some larger issues on her mind these days.
2: I think as, as we sit here, the day in which uh, Parliament has decided that the brec- uh, Brexit has to uh, – the, the day in which the courts have decided, at least uh, at first instance, that Brexit has to go to Parliament, then I think she does have other matters taking her attention, at least uh, today and, and into the next week. But um, I, I think the blockbuster financing for, for Unilever Oil is – is interesting so basically the idea is that most government departments took a haircut under George Osborne in the the Chancellor in the last administration but the SFO had this mechanism where they could apply for what's called blockbuster financing and to do that it was a little bit like taking a business case along to the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Now any fines that the SFO can get or any payments go back into the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the sort of central pot that's roughly the equivalent of the US Treasury. So this mechanism was basically for the SFO to more or less do a business case and say, if you give me another 20 million uh, pounds of funding, then I think I'll be able to bring a case against this corporation and uh, and this will be for the greater good. Some say that as well as saying this will be for the greater good, there might be a line item that says, and I expect the fine to be 40 million pounds to pay back the 20 that you've given me to bring the case. I'm not so cynical as to say that happens in every case. Um, We know that the SFO have succeeded in getting blockbuster financing for the Unoil case. We don't know the level of extra investment that the Chancellor's put into that case. Um, But it's been in the news this week particularly. The unit oil investigation is apparently linked to a larger investigation into the engine maker Rolls-Royce. And that was the subject of a BBC documentary earlier this week. Uh, it seems that uh, there were, uh, to quote the documentary, thousands of emails released to an Australian journalist which may point at wrongdoing at Unioil. It's important to stress, even if only for the sake of your insurers, Tom, that uh, <laughs> Unioil <laughs> claim that they've been the subject of multiple uh, episodes of defamation, that their reputation has been unduly solid in these emails, and that the emails were obtained as a result of criminal activity. But regardless, the BBC covered the story this week, and it seems that what the story relates to, and this is a theme we might return to in these, in, in these uh, podcasts, is one of the reasons for the confusion seems to be Uh, a straightforward SCPA policy. So one of my criticisms of SCPA policies I see from U.S. corporations is that they teach people what a facility payment is, what a facilitating payment, facilities payment is. And they say to them, you must not pay bribes unless it's a facilitation payment. Um, and the net net is, of course, that a lot of bribe payers then say, well, so long as I can fit within that definition, then the corporation thinks it's okay for me to pay the bribe. And this seems to be the Una Oil case, at least as expressed by the self-described whistleblower, that he said he paid what he called a facility payment to somebody, which he called a thick envelope, and he seems to be saying that he thought that was permitted because he believed, he says, that facility payments were permitted by Unioil. I'm stressing and underlining and putting in bold the fact that that's his version of events and we haven't heard Unioil's yet. And that's presumably what the SFO are going to use, their existing uh, resources and these new resources they've been given, Uh, To investigate. So in some respects, it's an uncomfortable situation because, of course, the SFO are meant to be independent of government and yet to get funding for these blockbuster cases, these significant investigations, to get additional funding, they have to go along to government to authorize it. And on your second point, of course, that's also the concern about any reorganization of the SFO. There were good reasons originally that the SFO was made independent of other organizations. There was the allegations against the Blair administration's involvement in a investigation relating to Saudi, for example. And it was seen that there needed to be more independence, both in terms of uh, the, the uh, prosecutors and also that the regulation, that the legislation needed to be toughened. And it would be, Regrettable, I think if it was perceived as a result of government in- enforcement that the, that the prosecutors had somehow become weakened. You know, the SFO have been criticised, but I think to give a balanced view, the morale seems to be better than before. They do seem to be involved in some meaningful cases and, and equally the, the perception of the SFO has certainly... Uh, increased over recent years, and the current director has done, has done some good in trying to I- improve the image of the organization, and it would be unfortunate if we abandoned that and merged it into some super agency, particularly if that was perceived as being a puppet of government rather than an independent prosecutor.
0: Anyone have uh, any follow-up with Jonathan? Jonathan?
1: Well, Jonathan, hey, this is Mike. I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, uh, we keep hearing about the deferred prosecution agreements over there and, uh, and do you see that as a, you know, continuing trend? And I I do actually like the model there where the judges are more involved, but, um, do you see that increasing, increasingly occurring with uh, the SFO and these types of investigations?
2: I do, yeah. My, my perception was that initially there was an issue over deferred uh, prosecution agreements here in the, you know, was there enough of an incentive for the corporation? And I think the tongue-in-cheek thing I said in Chicago was, you know, the history of SCPA enforcement isn't a history of prosecution. It's a history of surrender of corporations, you know, seeing that they're in trouble and then you know paying their way out of it by by agreeing a settlement with government, and there wasn 't the incentive i don 't think in the dPA system for that to happen, given that the discount that you got didn 't look sufficiently attractive for corporations to to explore that as an avenue. My sense is that the uh, sFO have, have recognized the difficulties there, and you know we 've got this new dpa that we 're not allowed to know much about, which is currently called XYZ or XYZ for the U.S. audience, um, and we're told we're not allowed to be told more about it because there are existing proceedings presumably against individual executives of that corporation, but there does seem to be more of a recognition that the organization had had, had gone along and, uh, and was worthy of a DPA and worthy of some discount. So, and I think that will be where the rubber hits the road for DPAs. You, you know, if, if the only discount you get is the same as a guilty plea at trial, then most corporations, I think, might be prepared to run, run the gauntlet, uh, except in rare situations like the Standard Bank case, the first one that they had, where there's a corporate transaction and a need for some certainty. But I think DPAs um, will we, we'll get some traction and I agree with you Mike that the that the fact that it has to go before a judge who gauges whether this is in the interest of justice and whether the fine levels right and and possibly whether the split between uh, the SFO and the DOJ and the SEC where there's cross border enforcement who, who gauges whether that's correct is is probably to be welcomed and and by uh, information is that there's a couple uh, of existing um, ne- the negotiations that will lead to a DPA shortly as well. And I think the other thing that's very helpful is in both of the uh, cases that have come before the English courts so far, the judge has been very clear in publishing his reasons for approving the DPA. And I think the more guidance we get from judges on what a good DPA looks like, then again, that's more certainty for corporations, and the process is much more attractive to them as a result. Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's a, I
3: think it's a good model for the US
1: to follow, you know, in keeping with our tradition
3: with the UK. Yeah, I have one other question for Jonathan, just very quickly. I should know this, but for the benefit of me and anyone listening who does not. Does the director of the SFO, David Green, does the director have a set term or do they serve at the pleasure of the prime minister? Or how does that work?
2: Now he has a term that's, uh, that's renewable. So he's just gone into his second term, I guess. And they also have, very, very interestingly, I think, and I think this is different from the U.S., they, um, they have effectively an independent audit So there's an annual report published of the SFO's activities, just as if they were in themselves a corporation. And sometimes that report is quite interesting if you dig into the weeds of it. So, for example, one of the things that I think is interesting is we know the SFO are planning to buy a big uh, data machine. So they're going to try and look at things like artificial intelligence to target resources. Obviously, in the UK, we've had this trend of government collecting more information from oil and gas, for example, through our new transparency laws uh, of collecting supply chain data through the modern slavery legislation. And at least theoretically, there might be an opportunity for the SFO to put all of that data into a big pot and use their new machine, if they can get it to work, to target Prosecutorial resources uh, to, to where they're most needed. So stuff like that, I think, um, you, you know, isn't nobody's ringing bells and shouting to say that that uh, this level of transparency exists. But I think that the combination of this fact that there's a like a quasi-independent audit, uh, and the fact that uh, David Green will put stuff like that into the report. Uh, it, it is to be welcomed, and, and, and it's not really the same system as the as the US. I don't think it's as overtly a political appointment as my perception is uh, in the US. Although, obviously, you could point to things like Jim Comey's uh, actions over the last few weeks to say that he's much more independent than you might think. We may have to leave that discussion for another time. <laughs>
0: So uh, let me turn to Jay, Jay Rosen, Mr. Translations himself. Jay, you are an avid attender and chronicler of the compliance conference scene. And you've attended numerous conferences over the years, but even this year you've attended several. And I wanted to maybe pivot a little bit and ask you – to uh what what are your thoughts on some of the key differences that you observed some are clearly nuts and bolts type conferences such as the SCCE uh you just attended and wrote about the FCPA blog conference in New York uh which was a little more commentary focused so what are the strengths of each uh but how should a compliance professional think through about selecting one or more cl- uh conferences uh, to attend
4: So, uh, Tom, as the other guest said, thank you so much for uh, having me join the Roundtable. And um, the question that you present gave me a real uh, interesting opportunity to look back on the conference year for 2016. And um, just to kind of give a broad overview, um, this year I realized that I attended uh, seven conferences, Starting off in March with the ABA White Collar Crime in San Diego, uh, that was more of a group that was uh, specifically focused on white collar crime. Uh, we did a lot of talking about the Yates Memo, and this was earlier in the year, so it was before the pilot program. Uh, next conference was uh, ECI, Ethics Compliance Institute, that was in Orlando, about 450 people and that was squarely focused on ethics and compliance. Uh, in May, uh, one of the highlights of the year was uh, Compliance Week in D.C. And a uh, little bit different this year because uh, Matt Kelly was not running the festivities, but I think it was still uh, well-received. And I think that's a must-see, a must-attend conference with the fact that it kind of breaks the year right in half it's based in DC, there is really an opportunity to get a lot of government input and it's quite often used as an opportunity for folks in the DOJ and the SEC to uh, give a check in on how we're going half years and uh, what agendas they may be pushing. Uh, tried something new in June, the Association of Certified Fraud Examinators and I attended their small gathering of- 3,000 people in Las Vegas. Um, you know, the, uh, small being sarcastic, I felt very overwhelmed there. Uh, 3,000 people, there were folks that I have known, um, you know, that I've met along the way, but really, uh, I felt, felt like a very small fish in that big pond. Uh, then when I, wrapping into the last quarter of the year, uh, attended GIR live in New York City and GIR stands for Global Investigations Report. They're an outfit out of the UK that has uh, specialized publications for different um, legal groups, and they ended up buying what used to be known as Maine Justice, Just Anti-Corruption, which is Mary Jacoby's uh, really uh, great publication that was able and continues to break a lot of uh, uh, FCPA and anti-corruption stories. Uh, then uh, another must-see of the year, uh, this year, the uh, SCCE, Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, held their annual Compliance and Ethics Institute in Chicago. This is when the uh, last time our group got together, and that was kind of like a middle-of-the-road type uh, numbers, 1,700 people. And then last week, as Tom said, uh, we were both in New York City for the inaugural FCPA blog, and I pegged that at around 200. So I think what you really can do is organize your yearly uh, conference schedule uh, based on what you're looking to get out of these things. So if you're an in-house CCO and you're looking for fellow uh, CCOs to benchmark and network with, I think an organization that has more of a focus on ethics and compliance, so like ECI or SCCE, that might be the conference you want to attend. Um, I like to get out to D.C., especially because I'm based in L.A., so I think a uh, a, a trip to D.C. at one point is worthwhile. And, um, you know, I, I think what you also need to augment the conferencing with is can you do anything regionally? And I know, Tom, you're very active with Gerber, the Greater Houston uh, Business and Ethics. Um, what's the R4? Roundtable. Roundtable, should have known that. And, uh, you know, we have different regionals. There's a, a group in Chicago. There's a group in uh, the Bay Area as well. So I think it's almost like you can kind of custom design a program but I think different people get different things out of them. Uh, the, the other comment that you made earlier is my preference is uh, to have smaller interactive things rather than uh, have people reading off PowerPoint slides. So I think that is something that, you know, not only attend- uh, presenters are aware of, uh, attendees um lock on to that pretty quickly so um uh, it might be interesting to go around the table now and see um you know how folks uh either uh, agree or disagree with the uh we have kind of dissected the conference market space
0: so matt you've actually run conferences maybe uh this would be a good one for you to kind of step in and give your thoughts
3: Well, I I agree with Jay about a lot of the conferences that he mentioned are worth going to. Um, I can say that, you know, when I have run compliance conferences, the actual coming together of everybody really is one of the highlights of my year when I do it. Um, I certainly enjoy SCCE's conference. Um, One conference I would recommend for those who are more in Sarbanes-Oxley compliance and SEC filings, internal control, uh, more to that end of it. Workiva has a annual users conference that typically will attract a good 1,500 people. Uh, it's also usually in the fall. Uh, disclosure, from time to time, I do some guest blogging for Workiva, but I think I would try and finagle my way into their conference anyways. I've been there twice now, and it's really outstanding for that Um, and I also agree that uh, what Mary Jacoby has done and their look at investigations that's all very good too Um, I personally like conferences not huge not thousands and thousands but anywhere from one to two thousand is a really nice size you're going to find no matter what your interest is you're going to find something there that you like and it won't be overwhelming Um, but uh, those are my kind of that's my quick take,
0: Jonathan. You not only attend uh, conferences here in the United States on a regular basis, but what uh, what might be your thoughts on some of the the top events in uh, Europe or the United Kingdom? And are they really different in focus from those here in the United States?
2: Uh, to, to be really frank with you, I tend not to go to that much in uh, in the UK. Um, I think there's a very small compliance community in the UK, really, and obviously the bulk of our business is for multinational corporations. Um, The SEC also has a conference in Europe, so that's in Prague next year. Uh, It was in Prague last year, and it was a a good event. And and I think Prague promises to be so as well. I'm um, uh, just, if I can trail it for a moment, um, I've persuaded the British ambassador to the Czech Republic to come and talk on an ambassador's view on Brexit, so I'm hoping that will be quite a neat panel. And, and to Joe's point, really, I am liking these uh, interviews rather than, um, you know, rather than a forced PowerPoint. I uh, had the privilege, I guess, of interviewing Max Schrems uh, ten days ago. The, you know, the man who brought this case that brought down Safe Harbor, and honestly, and. I'm not bigging myself up, but I think the Q&A format, particularly with somebody who knows a bit about the topic and can dig in, uh, I think most of the delegates said that they got more and more out of the event than a stock PowerPoint that by Max's own admission he's given 200 times. Um, so I think the good conferences are really getting great speakers, yes, but also making those great speakers say different things than they've done last time. Uh, and th- That would be my criteria. But we dream of 1,000 people conferences in the UK. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, can, we can only turn out uh, 600 people for the Brexit debate.
0: Well, gentlemen, I wanted to end our uh, hour with uh, kind of uh, going around the table and asking each one of you to tell us Sort of what's on the front of your mind, and it's really uh, hopefully compliance-related, but whatever it might be. Of course, the Cubs won last night, so there are going to be some people who's still on the front of their minds. But uh, Mike Volkoff, what are you thinking about today that you could tell
1: us? Well, uh, I, I mean, I'm uh, I'm absolutely uh, you know sort of immersed in the election, which is difficult. Uh, As I told you last night, I had to turn off CNN because I just can't listen to it anymore. But uh, and just remember this, uh, I think Donald Trump said that the FCPA was the stupidest law he ever uh, saw in the books. Uh, So uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, It should be an interesting uh, election. And, uh, you know, hopefully let's try to stay optimistic in this pessimistic time.
3: Mr. Kelly. Sure. I got two things, uh, both of them actually coming out of Europe. Number one, uh, I am told by my acquaintances in France that the French lawmakers will have their final adoption of the SAPIN II anti-corruption law sometime the week of November 8th. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have also been told by numerous French people. Do not count anything for certain about SAP and 2 until the law is actually adopted, and there are still many different changes that could or could not happen. I don't think the law will substantively change from what it already has been proposed, but who knows. Uh, But that final text, I guess, should be ready by November 10 or so, and I'll be curious to see what's in it. And the second thing that is on my mind, also coming out sometime in November, is the first ever corporate... Human Rights Benchmark, which is a nonprofit group that has collected corporate disclosures about things like conflict minerals, uh, their supply chain, human trafficking. This group came up with a questionnaire, collected all of the data. 100 large global companies have disclosed about it, put it through their formula, and are going to publish a ranking of those companies that pay the most and best attention to human rights they're doing this specifically to see whether institutional investors can take that and squeeze better corporate behavior out of them over time so the company can move up the rankings i'll be curious to see how this actually works in practice and the very first benchmark should come out by i think around mid november that's what i heard
0: well, we'll certainly look forward to that jonathan what's uh, on the front of your mind today
2: um i, I mean i just to pick up those other two points, I mean, I think we uh, have gone beyond laughing at the U.S. election to being <laughs> genuinely concerned. So as somebody who's not entitled to vote in it, may I lecture all those who are and tell them to get out and vote because we've seen in our Brexit um, election the reward for disengagement, and it's not necessarily a reward you'd like. So please you know, bend over backwards to get out and vote the right way. Um, Saponda, I hear the same uh, about you uh, as, as you do as well. I think it's an interesting piece of legislation. I was in Paris, as I say, week before last. And it's interesting that it seemed to me that many people are saying the driver for this law isn't France, you know, getting concerned about corruption. It's France getting concerned that the U.S. government get the proceeds of corruption prosecutions. And and so I think that's an interesting angle, if it is true. You know, they're worried that the likes of Total are paying their bribe fines to the U.S. government when they should be paying their bribe fines, if they're bribing, to the French government instead in these tough economic times. Um but I guess my other highlight, and i'd alluded to it already would be this uh, interview with with max Schrems. I think for those of us who are involved in compliance um, it's easy to see court cases and 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 look at them um, without realizing the circumstances that put that judgment on the page or calls that person to bring the litigation and And Schrems is clearly a deep thinker about issues like compliance. His next big campaign seems to be looking at the dominance that some major corporations have over data, and this affects compliance in all sorts of different ways. Will there be a joining up, for example, of antitrust regulators, of fair trade regulators and privacy regulators together, because is it the case that only this sort of Almost like superhero force of regulators has the power to regulate the Facebooks, the Googles, the Ubers of this world. So, so just as the world is changing, is there a need for compliance to change? And will we get sort of super pressure groups of the type that Shrems announced in the interview he was uh, setting up that'll try and Look at a much uh, much more holistically at compliance and hold major corporations to account. So that's my uh, that's been my highlight of the last week or so, I think. Jay Rosen, what's on the front of your mind?
4: Two things. Uh, one, like some of my other colleagues, I'm looking forward to having to uh, stop explaining election commercials to my eight year olds. <laughs> and uh you know, it, it's it's a it's a con- constructive exercise, but I hope I'm able to tell them in a week's time that democracy works and people made a decision based upon a candidate's uh ideas and uh action plans as opposed to people's uh uh you know, just character assassination and things like that. So that's one thing I'm looking forward to. And then something else that's on my mind, and it looks like it's on Mike Volkoff's mind too, is uh, the new uh, anti bribery global standard ISO 37001. And one of Mike's colleagues wrote a real great uh, column this morning that Mike published on his uh, website, uh, Lauren Connell, who is the managing associate. Really took a nice look at uh, ISO 37001 and, and talked about really what its efficacy is. And it's not going to be another tick-the-box uh, exercise, but it's going to really be a tool that I believe companies can use uh, both not only to show that they're compliant, but they can also wield this tool uh, to use it to improve uh, outcomes upon what the company does. Uh, along those lines, I'm excited to announce that United Language Group is going to be uh, working on a webinar together with uh, Spark Compliance, which we all know is uh, Christy Grand Hart and her colleague Diana Trebley, and uh, we'll be doing this uh, webinar on Wednesday, November 16th, uh, 12 p.m. New York time, 5 p.m. London time, and very late for me, 9 a.m., Los Angeles Times. So uh, thank you for indulging me on the plug. And Mike's uh, website is com. You can find it there, and I'm sure Tom will have all sorts of good stuff in the show notes. So those are my two thoughts. Thanks.
0: Well, I will just end by uh, noting something that uh, Mr. Volkoff and I discussed last night, which is when there is a Game 7 of the World Series and the National League team wins for the history of uh, recorded baseball, the, and if it's in the year of a presidential election, the de- Democrats win. So um, for all you people that are faint of heart, um, hold the faith. The Cubbies won last night, so uh, I think that portends a Hillary Clinton victory. Gentlemen, this was a ton of fun, and I look forward to uh, us getting together for our next uh, session. Thank you
3: you very much.